0: From Lincoln, Nebraska, presented by Unlimited Sports, this is 4th & Short. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in to 4th & Short for our inaugural production of 4th & Short. My name is Dermot Pogson, and I'll be your host for this series. Uh, The goal of 4th & Short is really just to be a defensive look at the state of modern college football. Today, we're going to be taking a look at uh, my personal home college, the Nebraska Cornhuskers. This is something I've been you know, working on for quite some time. And I'd like to extend a huge thank you to the Unlimited Sports crew for giving me the opportunity to make this a reality. I'm very excited to be bringing you this series. We're going to make it a couple different episodes, just kind of breaking down some important collegiate defensive programs and their history. Kind of talking about what, you know, how they started, how they got to where they are, their heyday and some projections for the future. For the state of Nebraska, defense runs deep in the history of the state. Defense, for football, is honestly all about effort. It's an inherently reactionary aspect of the game. You don't get to control when the ball is snapped, and you can't control what routes the other team runs, what formation they come out in. They are really in the driver's seat, and you're just there to react and try to do your best to respond better than they can plan for you. Similarly... The history of the state of Nebraska ties in really well to that history of outstanding effort. Traditionally, Nebraska has always been a bit of a blue-collar state. It finds its roots in agriculture, and the settlements began with farmers and ranchers working on the land because they found out it's really good for farming here. Farming takes a lot of work, and back in the old days, the railroads were really the main reason that it was able to expand and really able to survive at all, because you were able to finally transport goods, from the rich and, and usable land here in Nebraska to some of the other big cities like Chicago uh, in order to make you know, the economy happen. When the railroads kind of came in, that's what really allowed some of the first early cities to boom. That's what helped create Lincoln and our hay market downtown. Is, it was originally a market to sell hay. Similarly, Omaha started as, as a big town along that railroad line. And to this day, there are still railroads that run, such as Union Pacific, through the state of Nebraska and utilize its cities for the transportation of goods. When the Great Depression hit, the state was hit really hard. The price of crops and livestock absolutely plummeted, and a lot of the state was forced into really difficult poverty. But Nebraskans stuck around. They stuck it out. When the programs like the New Deal came in, they were some of the earliest to implement that and to start working to try to rebuild their once proud and and boisterous uh, agricultural economy. Then, when World War II came around, they were supplying food to the front lines. They had a massive um, output of, of crops, as, as well as livestock, because cattle in Nebraska is really prevalent, particularly a uh, shout-out to Rock County. County 81, up, up north of here, um, is just full of livestock. And so, some of that agricultural history Uh, is really what kind of cemented the early days of Nebraska. And all of that work is incredibly difficult. It takes long hours and a lot of really hardworking people in order to make it happen. In football, defense is the same way. You just really need to be willing to work harder than the other team. That's the entire basis of of defensive principle. Um, Obviously, you know, you can do your best to prepare. You can study film. You can schematically... Do your best to kind of isolate players that you think are going to be a problem for you. But fundamentally, they're going to do whatever they're going to do, and you just need to work harder to make sure it doesn't work. Getting off of blocks, staying on your man in coverage, having guys that are faster, having guys that are stronger, having guys that are more tenacious about getting after the ball. And fundamentally, those two things fit together absolutely perfectly. Nebraska and its defense naturally would be a love story in the making, and that's what brings us to the Blackshirts. Now, the Blackshirts are the it's the nickname for Nebraska's uh, defensive unit, and there's you know a very rich history and a longstanding tradition of defensive excellence within the state. This episode, we're going to take a look at some of the history surrounding the story of the name, as well as some important figures to take note of and some big moments in the history of the game, as well as how we got to where we are today and some analysis on the current Nebraska defense and what we're looking at going forward. Obviously, Nebraska is in a very different time right now than it was in the 90s and then in the 70s. And so I think it's interesting to kind of compare the two and see what the primary difference is and why we are where we are right now. So let's begin with the story of the name. In 1964, Bob Devaney's in his third season as the head coach of the Cornhuskers. For that season, it was the first year that college football allowed platooning, which, for those of you that don't know, platooning is the use of two separate squads for your offense and your defense. In modern day, we kind of think of that as like totally normal, where you have uh, 11 different guys playing on both sides of the ball. But in the early days, and really up until 1964, everybody played on both sides of the ball the entire game. You really didn't have that many new faces kind of getting into the game and if you did they usually played on both sides or had specialties in both sides of the game Um, a lot of times your quarterbacks would also be defensive backs now in high school football that's still really prevalent today even um, where you have guys playing both sides of the ball but as far as college goes I mean you look at the size of college rosters and there is barely anybody that even really gives it a try uh, to be on both sides so in 1964, when they finally implemented it, it took until the third game of the season for Nebraska to actually start using platooning, um, just because it was entirely new. They had to decide, all right, who's going to be on which side? How are we going to implement this? Can we get our transition uh, you know, down into something smooth and usable? But for Week 3 against Minnesota, they finally broke out the platoon. Now, in practice, in advance of this, they had started working on platooning, and they had started divvying up uh, their players into sides of the ball. And in order to differentiate who was on offense as well as who was on defense, they would use different colored pullover jerseys. Um, And initially, that was the first use of the black shirt. Now, at this point, it didn't have the name. Um, Black pullovers were only used just because they were affordable. Assistant coach Mike Corgan was in charge of team equipment, and he was uh, tasked with buying the least expensive jerseys that he could find. He was known for his uh, frugality and uh, often kind of was the butt of jokes about buying cheap equipment. So he goes to a local sporting goods store, and black jerseys are on sale. So naturally, he buys a ton of them, and that's what they started using to differentiate their defense. Now, George Kelly told the story really well in an interview a few years back, and and he stated that initially the defense wore gray, and and the black shirts were only for the starters, and they kind of began to be used as a motivational tool For players to earn their black shirt, Um, you know, they had would, would have to be continuously earned and they would change hands fairly regularly. The black shirt tag, the name itself, was first used by the Omaha World Herald in 1964 as two words. But as time would go on, the Lincoln Papers would catch on as well. And in 1978, the one word term black shirt was included in the official media guide from the Cornhuskers. At that point, the spelling was permanent and the name stuck. The tradition would continue with Monty Kiffin, the first Husker coach to bear the name defensive coordinator. By the time that Charlie McBride came around in the 80s and 90s, the Blackshirts had already reached national acclaim. Various coaches would have different opinions on when to award the Blackshirts. Under Tom Osborne, defensive starters would get the jerseys at the end of spring practice. In the early 2000s, you'd see more than 11 players getting a black shirt at a time in a big ceremony um, going into the season opener. And in his first season of coaching, Bo Pelini waited until late in the season after a great effort against Kansas, stating that black shirts are earned on the field. The unit has seen unprecedented historical success. They were ranked top in the nation two separate times, in 1984 and in 1967. They were ranked top 10 in all four major defensive categories five separate times. 1967, 1984, 1994, 1996, and 1999. And separately from that, they would go on to win five national championships in 1970, 1971, 1994, 95, and 96. There have been a lot of big games and a couple significant ones outside of those championships that I'd like to take note of include September 20th, 2001. It was one of the first games after 9/11 and Nebraska played Rice at home. There was a great opening ceremony and usually at nebraska games if you haven't had a chance to go to one which by the way you should absolutely try to get to a game in memorial stadium the atmosphere is absolutely electric there is truly no stadium quite like it it's it's a very unique experience and something that i hold very dear going to school here but in september 20th 2001 nebraska beat the tar out of rice it was 48 to 3 in an absolute route and it was one of the earliest games back after 9-11 at this point The NFL had suspended its operations. There was still an immense amount of fear from any large public gathering that there could be another attack, and no one quite felt comfortable going out in public yet. But this was an opportunity for life to kind of just temporarily go back to the way it was. The Huskers took the field. They played phenomenally. They only gave up those three points in the last seven minutes of the fourth quarter, and they forced four separate punts as well as had an interception late in the game. It was incredibly dominant. Entirely one-sided and the number four ranked team in the nation was doing their absolute best a few years before that January 2nd 1998, Nebraska beats Tennessee 42 to 17 and in that game Peyton Manning was leading the Tennessee offense which Holding Peyton Manning to 17 points is already a feat on its own The defense played a massive role This was the last game of Tom Osborne as a head coach, and they were not going to let him go out without an absolute bang. So they took this opportunity to really show what they were made of and, against one of the best quarterbacks of all time, did more than just hold their own, but held him to 17 points and do a great job, eventually leading to a Nebraska National Championship. There have been a lot of very significant figures in the history of Nebraska football. One of my personal favorites that I'd like to point out to you first is Charlie McBride. Charlie McBride was an assistant coach at the university from 1977 to 1999. He served for 18 of those years as a defensive coordinator from um, 1981 to 1999. He was present for three of their national championships and initially began as a defensive line coach. He had been coaching high school and had been initially from the Chicago area and met Tom Osborne at a coaching convention uh, in Florida, which is kind of what led to him getting the gig. But he wasn't outwardly looking for it he was one of the guys that tom brought in now he was the coordinator for the 1984 season and at this point in time as i mentioned earlier nebraska was ranked number one in the nation defensively and it was a very significant season for them not because they won a national title because they didn't but actually because they lost it in their bowl game against miami which was one of a string of very tightly contested bowl games. And honestly, the the history of Nebraska versus Miami could be a podcast on its own. It's a tremendous rivalry back in the day. They ended the game going for two and failing. Now you could have at the time played for a tie. If they would have gone for one, kicked an extra point, tied it, they would have still technically been the national champions. But Charlie McBride is quoted as saying in the national championship, you do not play for a tie in uh years earlier than that, not too you know, far in the past, Notre Dame was in a similar situation and did play for the tie and received some pretty national criticism. So as a proud organization, Nebraska refused. At, at the point on the sideline, everybody knew they were going for two. I was reading an interview of Charlie McBride that he did years after this event, and he still recalls very clearly that at that point in time, there was no doubt about it, that they were going to go for two. Now, unfortunately, it didn't quite work out for them, and they missed out on a national championship opportunity. But the pride of Nebraska football stayed strong, and that, to me, speaks a lot about what Nebraska is as a program as well as the people who love it. As I mentioned earlier, Nebraska has always been a proud state. They've worked hard for everything that they've had, and they've earned it tooth and nail through years of difficult history. I think Charlie McBride's tenure as defensive coordinator is a great example of what that looks like on the football field. He is widely considered one of the most significant coordinators in Nebraska football history and is really a huge part as to why they were able to win those national championships. Those defenses were absolutely phenomenal. In more recent history, Levante David, he only spent two seasons with the Huskers. He transferred from community college, but in those two seasons, he had 150 tackles went to a bowl game both years, and would go on to be a very successful NFL linebacker. He's still actually playing today. He's one of the most notable Huskers to represent the university in pro football. He's currently on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so if you're tuning in uh, in the upcoming weeks of NFL football, keep an eye out for Levante David. He's, he's doing great things out there. Nadamakong Su is arguably one of the most dominant college forces to ever play defensive line. In 2009 he won the AP Player of the Year and four separate national awards for his uh, tremendous season. He had 85 tackles, 24 tackles for a loss, 12 sacks, 24 quarterback hurries, 10 pass breakups, and an interception. And this is an interior defensive lineman. The man was putting up ridiculous stats. It's honestly something that's never been seen before. There was even a game against Colorado in which he got a flag and the lines judge was asked, during the game, what the flag was for. And he responded to the coach by stating he tackled him too hard. He would spend a large amount of time in the NFL. He's currently a free agent. He spent the last three years on one-year deals um, with Tampa, actually the same team as Levante David. So they were uh, teammates there. But he is still technically engaged in his NFL career. He's not currently on a team. He's also 35 years old. So whether or not we see him on the field again in the NFL is still kind of up in the air. But – he was a very significant player, both in Nebraska history as well as in the NFL. He's been a bit of a journeyman. He's played for a lot of different teams, but he's been very successful and has stayed in the league for so long because of that. On the coaching side of things, Bo Polini campaigned on restoring the order. He was brought in early as a defensive coordinator. Uh, he actually had an opportunity to coach a bowl game early in his career when Solick was fired at the end of the 2003 season, so he would go on and coach in the Alamo Bowl, which was technically his first game as head coach, but he wouldn't be officially named head coach until much later on. I believe it was 2008. He would struggle. He drew some criticism, particularly in 2012 with big losses to Ohio State, UCLA, Wisconsin, and Georgia, but for the most part, he was a very successful coach for the Cornhuskers. He kept them very competitive in both the Big 12 and the Big 10. He was the coach when that transition was made. And he kept them in, in first place multiple times for both of those conferences. There were some controversies surrounding his firing, and we'll go into that a little bit later. But he had a 15-1 record against ranked opponents prior to being fired, and that is tremendous, especially if you're considering like what Nebraska is at right now and how long it's been since they've won against a ranked opponent. I mean... Having that kind of record is something that would be absolutely Christmas in Lincoln. I mean, if we had a coach these days who was going out and putting up those kind of stats, people would be overjoyed. But that kind of ties in to what went wrong with Nebraska. Obviously, they have not won a national championship in quite some time. It's been a little while. And a lot of people were kind of wondering, what happened? They were so dominant for so long. Fundamentally, the primary issue is that Tom Osborne retired. Now, obviously, you can't coach forever, so that was bound to happen. And he's still been very involved in the organization and is revered here. He's a tremendous figure both you know, for the university as well as for the athletic department. He would be the athletic director um, after his, his coaching tenure. He would stick around for a while. But when he retired from head coaching, there was kind of this vacuum that occurred. One of the issues of uh, having a generational talent at head coach like Tom Osborne is that anything else just doesn't seem up to par. Like nothing's going to cut it at that point. Tom Osborne is one of the greatest coaches to ever coach the sport of football. And when that disappears, you could have a coach who's phenomenal, who does really good things for your program. But if you're not putting up the national championship wins, if you're not having that same just air of, of legend surrounding your name, it's going to feel not right, especially when you consider that prior to Tom Osborne, Bob Devaney was absolutely adored by the state of Nebraska. He brought in the first two national championships and was really instrumental in kind of building the organization and really did all of the, the crawling so that Tom Osborne could run. By establishing the groundwork of what Nebraska football was with Bob Devaney and then transferring on to one of his coordinators at the time because they had worked together uh, prior to Tom Osborne being the head coach, they created this natural transition of power. And when you roll from one legendary coach to another, people kind of just get accustomed to winning and accustomed to victory and used to having phenomenal results year in and year out. Unfortunately, that's just not re- like replicatable. There is no other Tom Osborne, and it's really, really infrequent that a figure like him arrives in the football world to begin with. So, there were a couple of premature firings. Basically, Frank Solik only had three years or sorry, only had six years as the head coach. He was primarily fired for just failing to upkeep the same output as Tom Osborne. Um, He did lose the AP ranking streak in 2002, but prior to that, he had had good quality seasons. He had had top contender teams for a while. He didn't quite bring in that same national championship every year mentality that that Osborne had, but he was a solid solid option. Later on, like I mentioned earlier, Bo Pelini also had a bit of a premature firing. Now, he had some off-the-field issues that really kind of put a divide between him and the administration. Um, His temper and his attitude were not things that the university particularly were fond of. And he had some off-the-field controversies involving recordings coming out of him making some comments that the university did not really approve of. Ultimately, he would be removed from the head coaching gig because the athletic director quoted that the program was falling into mediocrity. Now, there were a couple of games that – Nebraska absolutely should have won. And there really isn't much of an excuse for, but overarchingly his tenure, I would argue, not mediocre. I mean, he was a solid coach. 15 and 1 against ranked opponents is really good. And when you look at some of the first place, you know, first places that they landed in and some of the bowls that he was able to take them to and the bowl wins, they weren't national championships, but being ranked in the top 25 regularly is huge. That's something that not a lot of programs get to do. 25 of them get to do it, actually. That's why it's the top 25. And with Nebraska having been out of the top 25 for so long at this point, it really feels like we honestly should have just let them ride. The future. Obviously, we're in the pickle that we're in right now. This past year, Nebraska fired Scott Frost. They fired Mike Chinanner. And a lot of things have kind of changed. But there are some names that are still sticking around that I think are important to take a look at. Trev Alberts is the current athletic director for the University of Nebraska. As a player, he was a linebacker for the University of Nebraska back in the day. As a senior, he won the Butkus Award and the Jack Lambert Trophy. He would go on to play in the NFL for a little while. He's currently the athletic director, and he's really just the type of guy that's familiar with a winning culture. He knows what it's like to be on teams that are successful. And he has started making some pretty big changes in recent years. As I mentioned, changing the head coach, changing the defensive coordinator, bringing in Mickey Joseph as the interim, uh, sliding some of the assistants around to kind of make up for those changes. He's doing some good things, and it's a big period of significant change. Similarly, Barrett Rude, the all-time leading tackler in Nebraska history. He was a member of some very successful Nebraska defenses in the early 2000s. And he got it done as a player. I mean, leading the team in tackles is is incredibly significant. As a coach, he's been kind of so-so. He's had some highlights with Luke Reimer, Garrett Nelson. They've both been very successful. Um, The current linebacker core could be a lot worse. But over the last few years, we just haven't quite seen that same output as when he was a player. Some of that goes into recruiting. Some of that goes into execution. Whether or not he's able to get it done, especially with the change of a defensive coordinator, I could see his job not necessarily being on the hot seat, but he's a name that you're definitely going to want to take a look at, especially if the linebacker core doesn't get any better anytime soon. There have been some issues this season in particular with just a lot of missed tackles and guys not wrapping up or making contact, starting to wrap up, and then not being able to finish the tackle. A lot of that goes back to coaching. Now, I know... They've changed the style of practice. This year, they started doing tackling in practice again. They had stopped tackling really early on when Bill Callahan had came in because in the pros, tackling in practice is something that kind of gets taken for granted. I mean, professional football players know how to tackle because they're professionals. They've done it for so long. They really shouldn't need to be taught. It's also a great way to prevent injury by not having full contact periods, just having thud sessions, but in college— it's not quite the same thing. The guys just don't have the same experience. They don't have the same tenure. They can't quite just make it happen automatically. There still needs to be development done. I think bringing that back into practice, we've seen some improvements already so far this year. I'll be fascinated to see how that goes going forward and what Coach Roode is able to do in the years to come, particularly as the new defensive coordinator comes in and as the next couple of recruitment classes kind of get, get pushed through. Obviously, Nebraska's not what it used to be. It has not been up to the standard that they've set, honestly, at this point, for a lot of years. But there have been some individual showings that have been really, really good. The issue is consistency. If there is a period of turmoil where you're just inconsistent, it's bad for the program. You really need guys that are able to just get things done. That said, right now is that chance to turn the program around. We are in a serious state of change. I mean— Changes of this magnitude don't really happen all that often, where you get both the head coach fired, the defensive coordinator fired, both of those things happening mid-season, so you've got interims in. We're actively shopping for coaches right now, looking to fill those roles going forward. So, here's my look for kind of the, the future of the program. This particular season, right now, 2022, I'm not expecting a ton. What I'm hoping for is small victories that lead to a larger-scale turnaround going forward. Obviously, Rome wasn't built in a day. We're not going to turn around from getting our butts whooped by an air raid offense uh, against Georgia Southern into a national championship run in the same year. It's simply not going to happen. But if we're able to iron out some of those mistakes, get that consistency back on defense, start keeping our players actually making tackles, keeping them engaged— simplifying the defensive call and just making the defense do the basic things right, there could be a lot to build on with that. At this point, a lot of the damage has been done. But with the recruitment push, I would honestly celebrate the little things. You know, If you start seeing the coaching paying off, the small victories being won, individual assignments going particularly well, keep an eye on those linebackers. If they start having a lot better of a year than they've started, obviously there have been some injuries in that core. I would love to see Nebraska finish out with just a couple more wins. I'm not predicting a bowl game or anything, but in the next couple years, it's certainly a possibility. Honestly, college football is built around chance. The whole what-if factor that makes the whole game beautiful. It's really like the primary situation for any great football moment. You're always asking, what happens when? What if he makes the catch? What if he makes the tackle? What if he makes the block? What if he misses the block? What if they sack him? What if there's a fumble? That what if is what keeps you on your toes. It's what keeps you engaged in the sport of football. And not knowing the answer and having parity is something that really makes the game great. At this point, Nebraska has a ton of what if potential. Who's going to be the coach? Who's going to be the defensive coordinator? What's the rest of the season going to look like as these changes are implemented Does the team respond positively? Do they respond positively quickly? Can we turn the culture around and start moving towards a winning football program? These are all things that are going to pan out in the next year, year and a half, and I could not be more excited to watch it unfold. It's not often that you get to see this type of situation occur, and I'm very excited to watch it over the next few years and just see what becomes of it. And so with that, I ask you to just keep waiting. Keep watching. Give the team a chance. Give the coaches a chance. It's going to take some time, but there is an opportunity to watch great things happen, and we simply won't know until it does. With that, I thank you for tuning in. I have loved starting off 4th & Short with you here, brought to you by Unlimited Sports. Follow me on Twitter at Pogs Dermott, and I will catch you for the next one. This is 4th & Short.